everybody, and welcome to another episode of Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics into conversation. This month, we are going to be looking at a couple of superhero comedy texts, if that's perhaps an appropriate way to describe them, perhaps parodies we will discuss. The first text we're going to be looking at is Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis and Kevin McGuire's Justice League International from 1987, and we are going to be pairing that with Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber's Superior Foes of Spider-Man from 2013. As usual, I am joined by On My Left... Dr. Andrew Derman. I'm a lecturer at St. Charles University. And on my right? Uh, Dr. Michael Hancock. I'm a lecturer at the University of Waterloo. And I am Anna Papard. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. So, as usual, we will have some introductions to our two texts before we get into our scintillating conversation. Michael, would you be able to introduce us to Justice League International? In the wake of DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths, it seemed like a good time to reboot the Justice League. The previous incarnation, sometimes known as the Justice League Detroit, had been rejected by fans in part for its rejection of traditional characters in favor of lesser-known superheroes. And thus, Demetrius and Giffen began their run with Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, and the elderly man that follows Mr. Miracle around. Not exactly well-known heroes. Reportedly, this had not been the intention. Giffen wanted to do an all-star lineup, but in wake of a universal-wide reboot that was setting up a new status quo, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Flash were all off the table. With only Batman and a team of lemons left available, he did what he could to turn them into lemonade through comedy, distinguishing the series from others at the time with its heavy focus on the antics and banter of its dysfunctional leads. Volume 1 covers the first seven issues of the series, wherein the Justice League goes up against three superheroes from a nuclear-ravaged world, the Royal Flush Gang, the Grey Man, and other, frankly, unremarkable villains. They're unremarkable because the villains aren't the point of this series. The heroes and the way they respond to each other is. It's almost accepted its truism that the difference between Marvel and DC is that DC superheroes are big, mythic, larger than life whereas Marvels are more down-to-earth and flawed. If that's the case, then this is the story where DC's premier superhero team gets well and truly earthed and sodded. They're belligerent, arrogant, insecure, aloof, and always ready with a quip, fighting thinly-veiled social satire and even more thinly-veiled social commentary. And when it works, it works well. And it worked a lot more than I've expected. I haven't read this series before, but I had read the Matthias Giffen's and Maguire's follow-up series in the early 2000s, formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. Those comics were, to be honest, not my thing. The banter felt more like a non-stop nervous tick, and the action was slowed to a crawl. This volume felt different to me, like the so-called Bwahaha Justice League was still just at the ha-ha level, but in a good way. I don't know if it's because this volume is earlier in the collaboration, or whether there was a deliberate doubling down on later, but the comedy works much better for me here. The greater focus on action and less focus on verbal meandering creates a sense of pacing that grants the comedy more room to breathe. McGuire's style helps a great deal, with a tone that can handle both comedic face expressions and more dynamic action. This comic has too many dudes, too few Black Canary scenes, 
and the Guy Gardner setting should be taken down a notch or two, thanks. But for trying something truly different with a high-profile superhero team and succeeding to the degree that it does, it deserves to be remembered and commended. And now, Andrew, I'll get you to introduce us to Superior Foes of Spider-Man. Thank you. The Superior Foes of Spider-Man is a 17-issue series from Marvel Comics that began in 2013 and ended in 2014. The series is told through the unlikely vantage point of Fred Myers, a.k.a. Boomerang, one of the cheesier villains to emerge from 1960s Spider-Man comics. The series follows the sociopathic Myers through a series of lies, manipulations, and betrayals, constantly daring you to believe in his impossible redemption before reminding you, often hilariously, that he is still indeed the degenerate scumbag that everyone thinks he is. Boomerang's motley crew includes perennial losers like Speed Demon, formerly The Wizard, Shocker, Overdrive, and the somewhat capable though oft-ignored new Beetle, all of whom Boomerang uses and abuses in order to navigate his debts and obligations to a competent, though intimidating baddies, Hammerhead, the Owl, and the Chameleon. Though the premise is a little bit cliché, the supervillain context helps Spencer find fresh ground within it, and he writes Meyer's internal dialogue with a precision and wit that carries the text-heavy narrative to endearing heights. Lieber's artwork infuses a bit of alternative comics rough edges into the Marvel House style, bringing the diminished reality of Meyer's world to life with an aesthetic that ably matches the essence of the characters. In the few short years since this series came out, we can already see its influence in things like Matthew Rosenberg's astonishing X-Men run, and more famously Tom King's treatment of Kite Man. Hell yeah. All told, The Superior Foes of Spider-Man has a great deal of fun juxtaposing Silver Age comic silliness with something akin to The Sopranos the latter a point of comparison that the series itself makes at one point. This is a fun comic. Thank you guys for those wonderful introductions. Uh, As we've done in the past, since this is a comics academic podcast and we are somewhat of comics historians, ostensibly, um, I thought we'd start off with some historical context for both of these texts. They're set in very different eras. One is from 87 and one is from relatively recently. Um, And yet it's interesting how they relate to each other, I think, across time. Um, Justice League International has been very influential on a lot of other superhero texts that came afterwards, although perhaps more influential like years and years later and less so in the immediate time of its release since the industry went in quite a different direction. Um, but so what, what is the context of, of Justice League International? Are you able to kind of give us some why they're based us, but especially you, Michael, to, to sort of set up what's the context that this is coming out of? Why was this approach to superheroes, this kind of a funny approach to superheroes so like different or important at the time? I've been uh, a little bit dreading this question because it reveals <laughs> just how inequipped I am uh, in a certain degree to talk about pre-90s comics, but... Um... Oh my, I lo- only on this <laughs> podcast, in this space, would you be so like ashamed that you don't know every issue of Justice League mm-hmm. off by heart. <laughs> Other people would think that just makes you less of a nerd, and yet here, well... it's a badge of shame. <laughs> We're talking late 1980s. This is moving towards the era of comic books being taken, or superhero comics entering their mode of being taken more quote-unquote seriously. Uh, Watchmen, Miller, uh, the idea of the very grim, very uh, deadly superhero. This is 
grown-up adult stuff about murdering people and so forth. And just and, for those you know listeners who don't know, so Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen are both from 1985, so and this right. is 87, so this is just shortly after that. Yeah, go ahead. And it's after DC's first major reboot? Yes, which, um, like, uh, it's after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Was this the Wonder Woman uh, George Perez? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. Oh. No. no. George Perez brought her back to. Okay. Let me but it's still like okay. a rebooting for her. It's uh, mm. Superman was going back yeah. to roots with uh, Burn John Byrne. Yep. Uh, the Flash had been passed over to, to Wally. Mark, yeah. Not Mark Waid yet, but or maybe Mark Waid. I wouldn't think so. Okay, a little later. In general uh, context, I, we I, have, I, a, I have a big rebooting of DC and some yes. sort of new. So all of the regular superheroes are not available, as I mentioned, and it means that what do we fill that gap with? <laughs> what and to put comedy as the fill-in for that gap is a pretty radical move. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, even in the in the trade paperback version I had of Justice League International, they, they talk about that quite a bit in the intro, that, you know, how risky kind of their approach was in this context, that everybody's starting to take superheroes more seriously, and they're like, we're going to do a humor book that doesn't include any of the big iconic superheroes, except for Batman, who gets some great moments in it. But, um... But yeah, did you have anything to add to that, Andrew? I just think when I was reading Justice League International, coming to what you were saying, um, I thought it was interesting how a lot of the humor was actually based in realism. Okay. Do you know what I mean? In, in that sort of juxtaposition between the absurdity of like being a superhero. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like, like the jokes seemed very um, well, human. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of humor that comes out of the fact that it's supposedly people who are dedicated to being very selfless doing yeah, and just, you know, I'm thinking Blue Beetle especially, and, and his personality, and his just, these people are all yeah. idiots, all that kind of time mentality. Um, I, I don't know what to equate that to, just except to say that I think it was um, a particular type of humor that in some ways maybe was well-suited to the increased realism that we were seeing in comics yeah, in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going right. to say, like, I mean, is this kind of, you know... I mean, yeah. the, the counter would be that it's still quippy to a point of a yeah. sitcom which kind of pushes against but. yeah for sure but for sure but i mean in terms of treating superheroes more like real people i mean Absolutely. you can definitely read yeah. that within the legacy of Watchmen or or dark knight returns a little bit less perhaps but like certainly kind of Watchmen, i would say that's something that uh, giffen in particular has become known for it so yeah mm. And I mean, even, well, we're going to get to style, but I mean, even in terms of the style, you can see sort of some like similarities to Watchmen in terms of that kind of clean line style. But we, we, we talk about that when we get to it. Yeah, well, we did. We did Giffen on an earlier episode for Annihilation. I think oh, we were all right. three of us very impressed with him mm-hmm. in terms of his work there. I usually like his stuff. I mean, no. Abnett and Lanning when it comes to this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a callback to our episode on uh, Sinestro Core War and Marvel Annihilation, which is our most popular episode. Um, so for reasons have, we do not understand. For reasons we yeah. do not understand. If you're the super fans of this problems. episode that are followers of ours, do let us know what you particularly liked about that one so we can do more. Um, well, what about Superior Foes? What's kind of the context that that's coming out in? Very different context many years oh. later. 
So what is the context that we're talking about with Superior Foes of Spider-Man? Very different context, right? Many years later, some interesting things going on at Marvel during that time. We're sort of having the increasing growth of digital comics, sort of the niche-defying and diversifying of the Marvel lineup in some ways. How does Superior Foes fit into some of those trends? Uh, I think Marvel in the sort of early 2010s was um, very interested in new creative visions, new creators, and, and new creative ideas, yeah. uh, which, which is why I think a comic like this would be allowed to exist. Um, the big context shift at Marvel for Spider-Man was that Doc Ock is currently Spider-Man, mm-hmm. uh, or occupying Spider-Man's body. It's complicated <laughs> uh, at this point in time. So I think that's um, um, maybe, again, reflective of the kind of environment that this is working in a, a very creative, let's try some cool new stuff mm-hmm. mentality. Um, and I know Michael knows a little bit about what was going on the other side of that. Right. Uh, so the pretty much the, the main title was obviously Superior Spider-Man uh, with Dan Slott. Yes? Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> during, yeah, that was part of his very, very long run in the title. Uh, I, I know because I remember there being one of those lightning rod creators because everybody, not like a lot of people really loved that run. It was really uh-huh. popular, but there was just like a real fan opposition to it as well. So people... And this isn't that long after the Spider-Man uh, One More Day reboot yeah. where he was written by a rotating cast of writers for a number of years. And uh, the other spin-off book of the Superior, or Superior Spider-Man was Superior Spider-Man Team-Up where Superior Spider-Man was taking down basically the more traditional Sinister Six members, uh, the Vulture, Sandman, Electro. Uh, This is where they were. And then you have this title, which is, well, what if we looked at the Spider-Man villains that actually no one cares about, essentially? Yeah, or that maybe aged out of relevance. Mm. That's that's a more polite way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they would appreciate that. So I mean, what was, why was there the push to have these kind of, you know, uh, whatever we want to call it, this push towards some sort of more creative approaches, the push toward, I mean, what I was particularly thinking about with this series was how it fit in with, there were a number of series, you know, the Hawkeye series, um, yeah. Matt Fraction's Hawkeye series, and David Aha's Hawkeye. Ha- Sorry, David Aha's Hawkeye series with Matt Fraction um, was sort of part of this, sort of like this sort of, I don't want to know what I would call it, like domestic domestic kind of superheroes. I mean, Mm -hmm. sort of mundane superheroes, sort of like a deconstruction of the superhero archetype. But again, through kind of the details of the mundane, you know, through just sort of dialogue and talking and, you know, the kind of in-between moments becoming the main substance of the comic. Was that sort of a trend that you guys noticed at the time too? Do you think that the series, the Superior Foes, fits in with that? Very much so. I, I think the idea of what does a superhero do when they're not superheroing, mm-hmm. or in this case, what does a supervillain do? What does their day-to-day yeah, yeah. look like? Um, and having it be you know, really anticlimactic and usually kind of pathetic. Um, it's, it's engaging if written well, right? And, and I think ultimately it adds some, some depth and volume to the superhero universe at large. Do you see any influence of indie comics there? I mean, because you did have at Marvel them incorporating a lot of indie creators, like which is ongoing. A lot of this comic feels like Nick Spencer watched a movie like Snatch and was like, I could do that. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good point of comparison. But like, this was an era where I think Brubaker's uh, Criminal was going Mm -hmm. like through various uh, miniseries and that kind of like noir influence is very clear in this series. 
yeah, I see the noir in Void. I feel it's, it's almost it's almost like a sunshine noir because it's like because of the humor aspect, mm-hmm. but that's not doesn't quite fit the definition of sunshine noir. Well, what it, that might lead into my other big kind of question about these two texts was, what are they? They're both superhero texts that incorporate humor, but do we also think that they're parodies of the superhero genre? So parody is a complicated word, mm-hmm. which there can, can be tested. Yes, and there can be a lot of different definitions of parody. And when is it parody, and when is it satire? I don't think I'd personally go so far as to call either of these satire, but are they parody? Well, you can certainly make an argument that this. I think it's pretty definite that the sequel series to Justice League International by the same creative teams, that is definitely parody. So by which, that point, which series is that? Uh, I can't believe it's not Justice League. Okay. And I, I don't remember what the other one's called, but something yeah, yeah. very similar to that yeah. title. Uh, yeah, those. By that point, uh, it's firmly in the foot of what is called the the Bwahaha Justice League. <laughs> and I don't think this, at least the first volume, actually gets there. Yeah. I think there's still a foot in the more, like, we are superheroes camp. This is not a... Yeah, uh, yeah we're, not, we're not a parody yet. We are still a superhero team. And to the book's credit, actually, yeah. I, I, as I said I, in the intro, I don't like the uh, later versions because of the degree they go to. Well, would we say, I mean, can we think of examples of the way it's kind of balancing kind of humor and drama? Because I think it is doing that. The issue where Booster Gold joins the team. Okay, full stop. How are Blue Beetle and Booster Gold not just a couple? Like, I mean, I know that everybody talks about that, but I mean, rereading this, that's like so how it sounds. And this is so early in it. I know, but it's like... They are so much closer. Blue Beetle is so so alone and lonely, and then Booster shows up and he's like, oh man, that guy seems cool. And you're just like, they have like the glances across the room, and I'm just Mm. like, oh my god, I'm here. I'm here for it. (laughs) Needs to happen. But anyway, please continue. The blue and gold are... Everyone's favorite team. Oh. Um, although I do miss Skeets in this particular set. Um, yeah, uh, so Booster Gold uh, joins a team but feels that he needs to prove himself since he joins through uh, Maxwell Lord's machinations. And the sequence of events that lead to that, like it feels at the end of that, Booster Gold gets a genuine, like, I did a good job moment mm. that I don't think you would get in a straightforward parody that, mm-hmm. that would be undercut in yeah. your mind in some way. Like it does want us to care about his emotional well-being yeah. and like feel good that he had this victory like as a point of identification, right? Right. I mean, what, what on the other side though, what are some of the instances where it really kind of makes fun of superheroes? If we're going to think it's like a more, a more deconstructed parody at moments, can we think of any examples kind of like that? I think a lot of the um, ways that the series kind of oscillates is through the cast and, okay. and, and how the characters are kind of occupying different, let's say, tonal universes. Yeah. Uh, so you got Booster Gold, who's more on the comedy side. You've got Guy Gardner, who is um, incredibly cartoonish Yes. Uh, in this version. You've got Batman, whose emotional constipation is exaggerated. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's extreme, even for Batman. <laughs> yeah, so it, it seems like... You know, you want to do a serious scene, you just move the camera over to the next character, and then you want to do yeah. funny, you just move it back to the funny. Yeah, guy. I mean, that's like an interesting way that it's using the ensemble cast thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. In comparison, Superior Foes doesn't really have any of those, like, major tonal shifts, or at least not that come to mind. The, the characters are different 
like they each have their own distinct personalities, but it's all towards the same level of theme. Yeah. Or level of tone. Yeah, I, I think there were moments where they're sort of teasing out the Beatle as the serious character, the real character in this, this band of losers. Um, but then they shift that away um, pretty abruptly with her becoming um, Hammerhead's daughter. Is that actually in the volume set that we're looking at? Yeah, okay. Yeah, toward the end. Yeah, just at the end of issue six, it gets revealed that she is the daughter. And then I think we have her origin story issue that is issue number seven. Okay. Um, well, but I mean, in terms of, but there are these tonal shifts in Superior Foes too, though, where we get, I mean, think about something like in the first issue where we have the thing with the little girl and the dog in the pet store and like, and then <laughs> it's like, so this little girl is getting a dog at the pet store and then I don't remember all the names of the characters. Uh, Shocker. Speed Demon. Yes. Yeah, uh, Speed Demon and Shocker. And Shocker. Really. Yeah. And I love that scene because they decided to go to the pet store in their supervillain yeah, costumes. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. And they're like just walking around the street with trench coats over their <laughs> supervillain costumes. And they have to get Birdseed to feed Boomerang's bird while he's in prison. Um, anyway, but they end up robbing the pet store and they also steal this dog, this really cute like little corgi dog from mm-hmm. the little girl who's about to buy it. And specifically because she wants to name the puppy Inspector, and he says that's a horrible name for a dog. She's got to learn, and so he takes the dog from her. What do you make of a moment like that, though? Because it's such a every time like a little adorable dog gets introduced to a bad situation, you just feel like that's going to be some sort of pathos, something bad is going to happen. But I mean, what do you make of that? Because that's a very like almost I, upsetting scene, and honestly, that's played for humor. But it's- I laughed. I, I don't mind yeah. admitting yeah. I laughed at that scene. I mean, if something unpleasant happened to that dog at any point, it would yeah. go in a different direction. Yeah. But um, there's always an element of comedy that these supervillains who are incredibly blasé about even murdering each other mm-hmm. yeah. uh, are like, this is my dog and I will die for this dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of a John Wick thing, I guess. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, can you think of other examples of kind of tonal shifts, though? Because, I mean, well, what about with the Boomerang character? Because he's the character who's at the center mm-hmm. of it, and he does seem to be, if there's a character that we are supposed to sort of sympathize maybe, with and yeah, identify with, with it's got to be him. relationship with the bartender. Yeah. Which, um, well, we won't. Well, to what degree do we find him sympathetic as a character, then? Maybe that's sort of the question that I, I'm getting I think at. we're not supposed to. No, I think it's I think it's both. So I think as I said in the intro, I, I think the main character dynamic that we're seeing with Myers is uh, again the text wants to play on that protagonist effect mm-hmm. uh, and wants you to sympathize with him and see, him, see him as an antihero, and yes. it keeps giving him these chances for redemption, mm-hmm. and then no, he keeps doing the wrong thing again, again, and again, um, and that's actually where I find not just kind of the the, the character dynamic, but that's where I find a lot of the innovation in the story. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's where it fits with. A lot more of the sort of uh, zeitgeist of the time that you could take a look at this and be like, tonally, this has something in common with a show like, well, it's a few years off, but uh, Better Call Saul. Right, right, sure. But like the Breaking Bad type protagonist, or I guess Sopranos is the more obvious. Yeah. Yeah, but th- th- this guy always disappoints you. Yeah. And I, I love yeah. that about I I think that's where the story becomes really interesting in Spencer's commitment to maintaining that Myers yeah. is a bad person but still daring you to like him. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's where like maybe something sort of more 
approaching satire, right? Because, I mean, it's convincing mm. us to like this character and then undercutting it routinely, right. right? So it's implicating us in, oh my God, you started to like this person? What's wrong with yeah, you? Exactly. Look what a bad guy he is. He just tried to kill his friend. Although also, like, undercutting the undercutting that, like, arguably murdering one of your friends would be the point, the crossover point, yeah. but it's a point that is undermined. Yeah, by, yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, still happy-go-lucky. He's still cracking I mean, wise. Not to his own but, like, no, he's not really dead. It's okay. I guess, yeah, I just was curious about that because I often have sort of issues with these kind of villain series and kind of turning villains into heroes mm-hmm. in a way and kind well, of I... people's affection for that because, I mean, it's a moral quandary, right? I mean, even though it's just a joke and everything, the fact that it's just a joke can make us make some yeah. very poor moral decisions about, well, it... about what kind of characters we're going to support. It does something mm-hmm. similar as what you see in some of the more comedic uh, crime films that... By keeping it very firmly rooted in the community of criminals, uh, it is a little more okay that they are doing despicable yeah. things because it's to other despicable people. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm again just, I didn't think of it before. As soon as Michael brought up Guy Ritchie, I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what we're doing here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I had mixed feelings about it for sure, just in terms of, I mean, I remember at one point talking to like, like a fan about kind of Wolverine and how many people he actually kills and what it actually says about us that we still support this character and want him to succeed and like care about him and I was like actually that is awful I have never seen the character the same way since then I mean yeah there's some Wolverine stories that just don't work because they go too far in that direction yeah. mm-hmm. he murdered a dozen of his own children yeah like, uh, let's, let's pretend that one didn't happen but then with yeah you're right though that in this comic I mean if he's just gonna be like beating up the owl and like monsters in the owl's compound and stuff like you don't feel that bad about and, that. Right, and right. there's a discernment there that like the owl is portrayed as more villainous yes exactly oh exactly. Yeah, yeah and the 1984 like rat cage torture yeah, yeah like, that's, and then we that's get, extreme we get a splash page of the owl like chewing on a live rat yeah. to just save one for me that, you know <laughs> of the two probably we're going to be more on boomerang side So I know we end up talking about, again, potentially another boring question, but I think an interesting one for Justice League International in particular is to what role kind of gender is an aspect of whatever parody is going on here. I think it's definitely worth talking about Guy Gardner's behavior in Justice League International and what our mileage is on that so many decades later. Who wants to take that one? Well... I think the, one of the most frustrating things about the Justice League International comic is that it feels like the women are there for Guy Gardner to hit on. Yeah. And, like, Dr. Light is out pretty fast. Canary essentially has nothing to do. Yeah. Well, she's very ill-equipped on this team where everybody has sort of crazy well, superpowers. It's, it's a team where doesn't. it's a bizarre... Yeah, it's a team that's clearly chosen for the comedic effect rather than in-world reasons yeah. because there is there is no reason for Blue Beetle to be on this team yeah. when Batman is on it. Right, there's a lot of overlaps. Yeah. Eventually they find a point that works. I mean, I know the fire and ice get kind of mainstays yeah. with this. Yeah. and I remember that. Uh, I remember in their sequel series, uh, they basically switch Captain Marvel with Mary Marvel, uh, which has its own gross implications (laughs) that they take it to, but at least, okay, that's an actual character instead of 
uh, canaries kind of standing around. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Michael's sort of put his finger on it exactly there. The problem for me with Canary is the standing around. Yeah. She is lovingly illustrated a lot, but she doesn't do anything. She wears a cool headband. She does have a very cool headband. <laughs> A nice frizzy hair, I love her hair of the era. I love her hair. Well, <laughs> I mean, one of the scenes that bugs me in it, and I love Justice League International so much, but the brief scene that we get with Big Barda, where Mr. Oh, yeah. goes around with Big Barda. Which, yeah, it's like, there is... Can, I don't know wanna, why she's not on the team. Do you want to walk yeah. us through the scene? Uh, the, the scene... Okay, so throughout the comic, uh, Mr. Miracle is a member of this team. Uh, he refers to his wife occasionally, which, you know, as a married person, you probably would. Yes. Um, and uh, basically to the point of, oh, and I remember a particular conversation that goes along the lines of, aren't you worried about being a superhero in this line of work, given that you're married? And they go, and he goes, no, um, my wife could probably beat you all up yeah. or something like that. And then there's a scene where he actually talks to her and is like, I'm going to be on monitor duty or something, and it's a very, like, stereotypical portrayal of a Cloying comic wife. wife. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like she goes still... into a rage yeah. that he isn't showing up for their date. So, I mean, the joke of the scene becomes, like, isn't it funny that she's being, like, a typical bitch wife, but also she's super strong and smashes right. the phone? So it's not only, like, putting her in the stereotypical role, it's, like, making fun of how funny it is that she's so strong. It does actually compare nicely to Tom King's recent Mr. Miracle, mm. where, where Barda is very capable and very powerful, but is always just kind of there to support yeah. Scott in, in ways yeah, that I found very uncomfortable. centered on Scott, not her, and un, feels unnecessarily so at times. I don't, I don't know if I would like to see her more in the series, given how she's handled in her one appearance, but right. she does turn it out. seems like a much better structure. She does sort of join on a semi-official basis in like later issues, which is good, because it does seem like, why the heck wouldn't she? Yeah. I mean, like, better her than Oberon, frankly. Yeah, like, well, what, I don't know what he's doing there, but... Well, he's always a mysterious character. What is that guy's deal? So should we unpack the, like specific scenes of casual sexual harassment of black Well, I was, I was going to say, I was going to correct Michael of like, hit on characters. I think you mean harass characters. Yes. That is, <laughs> I knew thank you. you that, is a, that is the correct way. Because yeah. it's not characterized as heroic behavior, obviously. Yeah. Right? Because it's Guy Gardner, the guy who's we're, we're, we're supposed to kind of hate, I think, in the story. But at the same time, the fact that I mean, it's normalized yeah. through humor. And it doesn't stop other members from also hitting on women. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting fact, a Guy Gardner comic is one of the first single-issue comics I ever owned, for some <laughs> odd reason. It must have been in some sort of, like, supermarket grab bag or something. I was just like, what the hell is this? Um, but I have an affection for Guy Gardner, and yet, and I even found in this series I have an affection for him, and yet, obviously, his behavior is super problematic. Uh-huh. I mean, the book's aware of that, though, yeah. right? I, I guess the question is, like, like how but far like, do we go? If... Yeah, if, if we are supposed to take this seriously as a real character that exists, then and a human treatment by the other other people like this guy doesn't last twenty four hours on your superhero team. No. Well, what's the appeal of this character then? Because I mean, I mean, I, I guess I can think about. I mean, I find him appealing just in the sense that like he's just gonna do whatever he wants and it's this chaotic force and that's sort of exciting and enjoyable and that is probably the thing that i enjoy about guy gardner well 
I guess what he does, I mean, the whole purpose of him here is to build up to that one punch catharsis moment. Ooh, which yeah, is where Batman punches him. And everybody's just so delighted that he did. Or very sad that they missed it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And then we get some other pathetic stuff with Guy Gardner where he, like, has <laughs> sort of a personality change from, like, hitting his head when he goes under, like, the cabinet to find his green lantern ring and gets scared by a mouse and then gets knocked out for, like, two issues. And then when he wakes up again, he's got this weird personality change and, like, no one's concerned about it. And he's reading Cosmo. <laughs> yeah. So, like... I mean, but then, like, that treatment of the character becomes very satisfying, because as much as he's enjoyable as this chaotic force, you also want to see him suffer, and that's kind of the enjoyableness of the character as well. Like, when I say I enjoy Guy Gardner as a force of chaos, I also enjoy seeing him get, like, pummeled into the dirt, which is part of the enjoyment of his chaos. Yeah. you know, he's horrible. He's spurring a lot of the internal conflict. Yeah. And this is a book about internal conflict yeah. with the team for the most part, right? It's 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 not about yeah, why not they can be. If you take Guy Gardner off the team, then basically you get a bunch of people who nod when Batman tells them to do yeah. something. But then it makes me feel bad about the enjoyment of the character, right? Because it's just like, we need this like horrible character here, sexually harassing everybody just to like have the story move forward. Yeah. I mean, like... Uh... Um, yeah, you, I mean, you could find something else to get him to do obnoxiously yeah. that did not have to be there that's true that's true as a point of comparison he actually reads very similar to how um, Chris Claremont first used Wolverine in X-Men mm-hmm. as just this constant antagonist who wasn't on board with the team who's mm-hmm. constantly undermining the leadership structure mm-hmm. um, so I don't know it's been done before it seems to work pretty well it's off topic I mean I hated that Wolverine personally <laughs> me too <laughs> I was thinking the other day about like the moment where they find out that that like Logan is his name but it's yeah. like really cute. I remember there being a cute thing with him in Nightcrawler, but I have to reread it. Um, yeah, well, what, how does this compare, compare to Superior Foes then? I mean, we all, we have the token girl on that team and stuff, but I find some of the things that it does kind of with the gender dynamics like a little bit more interesting. It's like, they're definitely like creepy assholes. Right, yeah. And yet, but that's part of their character. And she's part I, of their character, but... I like that she gets to be ambitious. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and like she is definitely the number two character of the book yep she gets yeah she gets more agency than really anyone else then on the other hand like there is absolutely no reason that she needs to be the only female character right yeah. especially in a 2013 book but... well okay I'm gonna be an apologist not really the only reason I like her being the only female character is that I think one of the notions is that these are people that women see and it's like a red flag. These are creeps. Um, so the idea of her being there factors into her backstory a little bit, uh, being raised by Hammerhead and therefore kind of seeing these low lowlifes as uh, a desirable environment to inhabit. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd like a female character, not maybe on the main team, but like one of the rotating gangs of criminal masterminds yeah for sure madame mask is brought in very late in the series but like something like that i mean if it was done now if it was done like a year or two ago it would have been uh felicia hardy as one of the crime lords right 
Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about it. I, I can see what you're saying, Andrew, but yeah. And, and I mean, she is a pretty good character. I mean, I like that she gets some complexity in terms of like, you know, she's kind of this ambitious badass, but she's also really into like organizing and does those like binders for their mission and yeah. everything. And that's like a nice character moment. Yeah, well, I mean, so what do we think the, just to close up the parody question a little bit. I mean, what do All we right. think? What do we think? That's what originally we were talking about. But I mean, what do we think is the ultimate kind of effect of the parody? Are these things like rewriting the superhero genre are they sort of just like propping up the superhero genre like the conventions of the superhero genre the traditions of the superhero genre by like we're all laughing on at it and we're in on the joke so we can just continue as normally now because we're all acknowledging that or is it doing something more active than that is it making us rethink superheroes right. at all well with superior foes we need to take into account that there aren't many superheroes in this book yeah yeah that is super it, that like it is a crime story that introduces a comedic element by having a lot of the characters dress up in weird costumes yeah and have yeah. a strange desire to fight spider-man yeah i think okay so smith's coming back to like the the earliest start of the question here um as anna mentioned there's, there's a lot of different definitions between satire and parody it's it's a really contested term the one that i always liked the most was that um satire is designed to reform a medium parody is designed to ridicule it so it comes down to a question in that definition, not all definitions, mm-hmm. um, of, of whether this is a situation where, like, say, Spencer um, or uh, uh, Giffen like superheroes or if they're making fun of superheroes. And I think in both cases, for me, that there's an affection there. Like, you know what I mean? They're, they're trying to, I mean, coming back to Anna's more recent question, they're, they're trying to reform it a little bit, to take it in a new direction, to yeah. add something. So, so for me, I read it more as satire, but as I said, I think what they're, they're doing is they're expanding the universe yeah. in interesting ways. I tend to think of the difference being a little more that satire has a target, a firm like, uh, or point, and I don't know if I like see that. Like a thesis, Yeah. I don't know if I see that here. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it would be for either of them. At least not in this form. I, I can think of similar works that did it, similar works by these creators that do that a little more pointedly, but not in this particular form. Well, and then if we come back to something like a comparison with Watchmen or something, Watchmen is so clearly a satire of, you know, various aspects of superheroes and society versus like JLA definitely isn't. Well, there's, I mean, there's aspects of critique. Right. I mean, you but know, smaller, narrower ones. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, capitalism is present. The Cold War is present. You know, the internal politics of like the superheroes. Like, I mean, it's a critique of masculinity on some level. Like all of those things are present, and yet again, like without, <laughs> without sort of some decent female characters, and like without it kind of going somewhere. Like, what is the target of that satire really? I mean, I think you could say it's satirizing like specific conventions of the genre yeah. that like satirizing the hero versus hero fight with the Batman one punch yeah. yeah or satirizing the character introduction when uh, Boomerang goes wait did, did we already do this guy yeah or like in Superior Foes the way I mean that affection comes across in terms of this is a story that's so set in the Marvel Universe and set in love of the Marvel Universe yeah. and set with in all love the, with all the yeah, the super peripheral villains yeah. that mm-hmm. never get the spotlight. Yeah, so I mean, it's, you know, it's like, you know, the no-prize version of the Marvel Universe, which is like, oh, all these, like, peripheral characters, and what do they do in between the panels? And, like, sort of that fan engagement, that 
is 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 created by that kind of universe is kind of what the starting point for this series is. So the affection really comes across there. Yeah, I think one of the things that it does sort of constructively is it maybe constructively it calls attention to the problem of continuity. Yeah. Uh, and just the idea that you know a, a character who was cool by the standards of the 1960s yeah. doesn't work at all yeah. in the 2010s. So I think it really makes us reflect upon um, that, that chronology of Marvel Comics in interesting ways. But then, you know, if we're fans of the Marvel Comics universe, that just becomes kind of a point of enjoyment and identification more than, not, more than critique. I'm not sure we want to make the argument that Boomerang was ever cool. <laughs> Fair enough. We talked about it a little bit already, but I think it's worth unpacking some more because there's a lot of characters we haven't talked about in depth. Was We've talked about this on previous podcasts when we've looked at team books, but in terms of sort of what makes a good team book, why these characters on this particular team, and I do think that both of these books do a pretty good job of sort of, well, I mean, with varying degrees of success, maybe is, is more fair, of sort of articulating the specific personalities of the characters. And that's sort of mm. often an important point when we're having a team book. You know, every character is going to bring something to the team and there's certain dynamics and they have to play off of each other and they're not just sort of getting lost in the shuffle, right? So how well do we see either of these books doing that? I don't I don't think Justice League International handles it very well. To really? Be <laughs> yeah. I think it is... A team with a few too many characters that mm. each one of them has a comedic role but mm. not a team role okay that um i don't know the case you make that you need batman i mean as i said before i don't know if you can make a case that you need blue beetle on a team that has batman on it uh john jones captain marvel and dr fate like once you've got those three do you really need a mr miracle right uh it's like all of these, and it, it shows in the fights mm-hmm. that there are so many cases where the characters, I mean, the there's a three-part devoted to the gray man where like <laughs> the superheroes are pretty much superfluous. The battle's decided by fate going, well, all right, I think I'm going to kill you. Along, yeah. I, I, called all, I called the whole Justice League in to stop you, and you captured them all, so I guess I'll just kill you, and now the story's over. See, I was undecided about whether that was like, kind of like a good intentional anti-climax yeah or whether it was just um, because i mean it depends on the motivations right like is it an anti-climax because the point of the book is just we want to show the superheroes hanging out in their clubhouse so we just have neglected the plot or is it intentional and we intentionally neglected the plot to make a point about the superfluousness of the superheroes it could go either way I mean, maybe the superfluous of them is part of the joke, but at that point you're getting into territory of like, all, are all the errors here part of the joke? Well, I know. Yeah, that's it becomes the, so defensible, yeah. right? I know. Okay, so here's my, my take on how um, the Justice League character dynamic could have worked. And I don't think it does, but... <laughs> so I think typically when you do a team book, the idea is to take contrasting characters. Characters who draw out the aspects of each mm-hmm. other really effectively. But normally to do that, you have to exaggerate those characteristics. So I would argue, if we are advancing comics in the 1980s in the wake of Watchmen, it would be cool to take characters who are actually very similar, thus creating a foil effect about more minute, minuscule, nuanced differences between them. But again, I don't think that actually happened in the book. And I mean, I think what you do have is like this very high level set of characters and this lower level. And even that contrast does not play up very much. That Dr. Fate 
does not spend a lot of time with the rest of the team. That yeah. Batman, uh, it works maybe best with Batman conversing with other people, but Martian Manhunter does not have that real contrast, really. Right. There, is, there You could do a great moment where Martian Manhunter has a long conversation with one character or the other. You get, like, brief asides, but... It's all one-off, one-liners. Yeah, and there's some non-payoffs too, yeah. like the character development of Captain Marvel, uh, and that sort of childlike contrast, and then he just sort of. Leaves. And I think there's a sense that either he is setting, either they are setting it up to be a rotating cast, which is very possible, or like they realize this set isn't working. We need to make some swaps. Yeah, maybe they were fine-tuning. Yeah, and I mean. Martian Manhunter goes through an interesting character kind of evolution over the course of the series if we wanted to look ahead a little bit. This I think where's he... Oreos? Or was that the D- TV series? No, it's in the series. Yeah. yeah, it hadn't come in in the issues that we read, but yeah, he definitely yes, in that, terms of in terms of bumped yeah. it up a, a whole grade. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? The, the, the Oreos. <laughs> Martian Manhunter has a thing about Oreos. But anyway, he gets to have kind of like a, a thing of, like, you know, he's super serious but super goofy at the same time. He's a very lovable character. It's definitely the series that turned me on to him. And our arc sort of sets up this um, this handoff of leadership to him at the very, very end of what we covered. Oh, it just occurred to me, the satire discussion. Um, the three issues spent in the USSR or I guess a satire oh yeah I wasn't even thinking there was the whole thing about like nuclear war that's like half of the series that is interesting because it is not comedy for the most part it is satire but not parody or maybe it is so maudlin that it doesn't work for me but so there are these superheroes from a world that's been destroyed by nuclear war who come to earth to try to stop nuclear war and then the justice league end up having to fight them because you know they have to support the international balance and what laws and whatever and so it becomes a choice of what they're going to do and what's the right thing to do and so there is definitely a satire going on there but what actually happens at the end of that story i think their presence disrupts the nuclear reactor and one of them has to sacrifice their lives for it oh. and the other two just surrender yeah that's right it's left hanging because the the guy goes in and he but he is actually alive at the end and they're like oh i'm sure we'll probably be able to fix him and then it just we don't see what happens i don't remember whether it gets brought i understand i looked it up and one of the characters at least one of the characters survives to be killed off later in the series oh, okay well good to know good to know <laughs> Do we have favorite characters from either of them? Oh, um, a more fun question. I was prejudiced going into this, I'll admit, because Booster Gold is a favorite character of mine. <laughs> but I really did like... And it's a little unfair because I think he's the only one who gets the f- full hero spotlight here, arguably. But I do love that moment that he got. Aww. it's yeah. cute. Um, I'm being repetitive. Um, I really like what was happening with Meyer's character. Again, pushing that admiration. Outside of that, the thing that I found interesting from a character standpoint was Shocker. Yeah, it was so... Shocker's... I think he gets... I think he's played for the, our sympathy yeah. more than a lot of the characters. I mean, he's such a... Like, again, if you know him from Spider-Man, he's a your typical really loud, screaming villain. Yeah. So to have him put in a supervillain dynamic and have him be kind of the quiet, reserved one... I thought was genuinely he fascinating. Kind of, he more than kind of consistent. older than the other characters, yeah. too. Yeah. Which, you know, yeah, he gets some interesting moments. And Whereas, we get some... usually, he's kind of like, what if Electro, but 
less. Yeah. Yeah, he has some interesting pathos moments. Like, we often sort of, like, go to his expression and he's sort of, like, sweating or worried and you're like, oh, dear. Like, he's sort of, like, that injection of consequences into the world in some ways. Yeah, you feel bad when he gets put in the truck of the car. No favorite from Justice League International for you, Andrew? Um... I like Batman, but almost like comedically. <laughs> Wrong choice. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I like how Batman he is in this comic. Yeah. And just, just how, how over the top that was. I found that enjoyable in kind of like a Dark Knight Returns way. I, I enjoyed it in that he like kind of sucks and you hate him because he's just stopping everyone from having fun. I, I, yeah, I do like, I mean, I think this comes out a bit, that, but Guy Gardner kind of overshadows the fact that Batman is also a pretty terrible person to work with in this. Yeah. Refusing, he usually like refuses to explain his reasoning for yeah. anything. It's like, yeah. you guys don't deserve my reasoning. I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for well, Superman. Well, the scene that leads up to Batman punching out Guy Gardner is interesting because I don't remember which character says it, but like, they're like, I think Batman enjoys these confrontations just as uh, much and he's yeah. actually provoking Guy Gardner. And I was like, that's an interesting character read and probably super accurate and they don't go back to it, but I thought that that oh, was interesting Oh, wouldn't it be thing. great? if after Gardner's personality switch like Batman tried to bait him and was disappointed <laughs> that'd be good that'd be good I don't know if it'd be too on the nose or not I don't know who I like from Justice League Internet. I mean Martian Manhood is a favorite of mine but he doesn't get like a lot of really cool stuff to do mm-hmm. I mean I do like he has the typical Martian Manhunter thing of like Batman has some line about like no no John can handle it don't worry and then you get the like oh right Martian Manhunter is super powerful and can just like handle stuff but only when we feel like it and other times we totally forget or we just like throw a match at him or something and then he's like out for the count (laughs) I find that funny about his character and I feel like the best Martian Manhunter stories kind of like lean into his ridiculousness and make him more lovable yeah So I am providing our academic review for this month. Uh, We customarily do books, but we occasionally do essays. And this particular time, I'm going to do an essay. I'm going to give you a little brief review of the essay, The Superhero Film Parody and Hegemonic Masculinity by Jeffrey A. Brown, a prolific comic scholar that hopefully some of you listening have read before. Uh, It's from Quarterly Review of Film and Video, originally published in 2016. So this article is, as the title suggests, an investigation of depictions of hegemonic masculinity within superhero film parodies. Now, hegemonic masculinity is a term that gets thrown around a lot, and when it does, it's often used somewhat imprecisely. Hegemonic masculinity isn't some kind of universal or timeless thing. Instead, it's the ideal version of masculinity that exists within a society and culture within a specific era, a specific time, a specific place. Few actual men typically live up to hegemonic masculinity, but it's an idea that men and women are expected to understand and negotiate. Performances of masculinity, or gender in general, are always in conversation with hegemonic masculinity, whether they're confirming it or subverting it. Brown argues that in the midst of the 21st century resurgence of the superhero genre as a staple of globally popular blockbusters, superheroes are a central site of hegemonic masculinity in our time a central place that ideals of hegemonic masculinity are communicated. This reading disappoints me a little bit, only because I like to think the superhero genre is capable of much more than this, as I know I've talked about on previous podcasts and throughout my work, really. Um, It's the genre's powerful ability to subvert hegemonic masculinity and gender norms. That's one of my favorite things about it. 
But Brown's not wrong, particularly where superhero films are concerned. To date, and despite some promising signs of diversification, superhero films have tended to gravitate toward the genre's most conservative impulses. You have to go back to the 60s to find comics where female characters are as thinly represented as they are in the filmic versions of the Avengers and the X-Men. Brown suggests that the increasing popularity of filmic superhero parodies offers an opportunity to challenge this conservatism. This wave of parody includes everything from superhero porn parodies, an increasingly popular subgenre, to films like Kick-Ass, directed by Matthew Vaughn before he did X-Men First Class, and Super, directed by James Gunn before he did Guardians of the Galaxy. In theory, superhero parodies have the ability to, in Brown's words, expose the ridiculousness of the entire genre, especially the unobtainable ideal of hegemonic masculinity. In both Kick-Ass and Super, the obvious inadequacy of the male leads as representatives of hegemonic masculinity allows the films to ridicule such ideals, criticize them, and invite viewers to laugh at them. But the fact that both Vaughn and Gunn went on to direct major Marvel movies points toward another, less revolutionary possibility. In practice, Brown argues, even as they seem to critique their subject, superhero parodies also quote, function to ultimately reinforce the dominant messages of the mainstream superhero films. In both Kick-Ass and Super, the seemingly pathetic male protagonists do ultimately save the day and even get the girl. In the final act of both films, the protagonists are redeemed as fully-fledged heroes. Thus, in Brown's words, instead of carrying through as critiques of hegemonic masculinity, both films valorize a conventional image of the male hero as persistent, strong, resourceful, and capable of emerging victorious, even against overwhelming odds. On its own, this is disappointing, but Brown points out a whole other layer of disappointingness when he observes that, whereas traditional superheroes have to undergo tremendous change in order to become super, the male protagonists of Kick-Ass and Super are allowed to become superheroic without undergoing any substantial change. There is no real justification for the transformation of these pathetic men into supermen, other than the apparently inescapable fact and privilege of their maleness. To once again quote Brown, under the guise of mocking superhero films, Kick-Ass and Super actually open up the fantasy of achieving masculine ideals as something that every man, no matter how far he is from being super, is capable of achieving. In other words, rather than subverting hegemonic masculinity, these parodies actually make it more accessible. This isn't a particularly uplifting conclusion, but I think it's an important one with continued relevance to both superhero films and comics. The reason I wanted to pair this essay with the text we're looking at today is because Brown compels us to investigate the multi-layered uses of parody. Referencing Linda Hutchian's groundbreaking work on the topic, Brown reminds us that spoofing elements of a text or genre does not necessarily mean that that text is being undermined. In fact, precisely because they reassure us that they're mocking their subject, parodies can be very effective at reconfirming hegemonic ideals. Basically, by reassuring us that everything's a joke and that we're in on that joke, parody can sometimes get away with telling the same old stories while evading criticism for doing so. Because we think it's a joke, we're less inclined to question it. I think this is something that's important to keep in mind when looking at recent comics like Superior Foes of Spider-Man or revisiting older ones like Justice League International. Are these comics using parodies to subvert the norm or are they using parody to reconfirm the norm? It's a complicated question that I hope you all keep thinking about.
So that's all we have for you today, other than our usual recommendations, something tangentially at least related to what we've talked about today. Um, Michael, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, I would like to recommend uh, Gail Simone's Secret Six work over at DC, oh, yeah. uh, which uh, is kind of similar to this, to uh, Superior Foes of Batman. Or, there we go. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what the secret is. But, uh, similar to Superior Foes of Spider-Man in that it is a team of supervillains going up mostly against other supervillains. Uh, a major difference being that these are generally more competent supervillains, at least of what they do, but has a similar level of bickering and infighting that would not be out of place in Justice League International. Uh, in particular, uh, she went through a few different incarnations of this series. I very much enjoyed the 2008 version with uh, Catman, Deadshot, Scandal, Ragdoll, and Bane. Oh, and Jeanette the Banshee. Which is the one, like, that's the series, like, one of those is the one where, they, like, they have a really sexy cat man, right? Yeah, that's the sexy cat yeah. I remember that being much discussed at the time, and Gail Simone <laughs> making that a focus, and I was all on board that, although I haven't read it, but I, I'm aware of sexy cat man. I'm only looking out for the important things. Um, how about you, Andrew? Uh, I'm going to recommend a miniseries called X-Men Worst X-Men Ever oh, by yeah. Max Pemis and Michael Walsh. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, the premise of the story is you have a new um, recruit at Xavier's Institute. His mutant superpowers, he can explode, but if he does so, he will die. <laughs> so he can basically never use his power. Uh, it's a delightful kind of satiric undermining of um, a lot of X-Men tropes, hence why I like it. Mine's not that good, but I'm just, I don't know. I'm on a real X-Men, specifically Nightcrawler <laughs> kick lately, so... This series kind of got me reading X-Men again and got me kind of excited about these things again. But it has some comedy in it. Anyway, I'm recommending Age of X-Men, The Amazing Nightcrawler. It's part of the Age of X-Men event, but you don't need to know that. It's just kind of an alternate universe thing, so you don't have to read the rest of that very confusing event. I, in fact, I encourage you not to. Um, it is by Shannon McGuire and Juan Frigari. I'm sorry, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing one of those names. Uh, so basically the premise is it's this alternate reality in which... The X-Man Nightcrawler is the most famous mutant on Earth. He is a star of basically a whole suite of action movies, and he runs the movie studio as well. And his co-star is um, Megan, who is usually the girlfriend slash wife of Captain Britain, but Nightcrawler had a big crush on back in the old Excalibur days. So they work on movies together and are a sexy action movie duo, but they're also having uh, a fair off camera, which is very scandalous because in this age of X-Men world, like sex and relationships are actually illegal. So just imagine the tension and the romance and the drama. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was great. Um, if you like superhero romance, I would encourage you to check it out. It's also sort of a parable about sex and romance in superhero comics, which is interesting. And it definitely does have some humor as well. Um, so that's my rec. So that really is it, other than to do our usual thank you to St. Jerome's for the use of their space and equipment, and to give a plug for our next episode, in which we are going to be looking at a couple of manga texts. We are going to be looking at Dororo by Asamu Tezuka and My Hero Academia by Kohai Horikoshi. See you then. <laughs>